The scripture today is Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. They went up to the mountaintop. This isn't an unusual setting in our Bible. The mountaintop, as we have discussed in recent weeks, is a place of clarity and vision. It's a place that they go for Jesus to be able to have the perspective of the prophets and for the disciples to remember the import of what it is that they are doing. Peter wants to stay up there. Peter likes being comfortable. But staying put isn't the point. Because mountaintops, as we remember from the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, are those halfway spaces between earth and heaven, between what we know and what God dreams for us, between what is and what could be. Mountaintops are those places where we can see clearly, where we can have perspective. They're not places we stay, but places that we visit so that when we descend, we can have that vision of the work that needs to be done here on earth. That said, this is a tricky text, as simple as it might seem at first glance. It's a tricky text because there's in hidden within it This one little note. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Dazzling white. Jesus and Moses and Elijah, dazzlingly white. Intellectually, we know that This is in the text as a way of denoting purity, royalty, godliness, a way of describing the radiance, the light that accompanied these prophetic figures there on the mountaintop. We know that the ability to bleach clothes was not as simple in Jesus' time as it is for us, that Mary couldn't just go out and buy a bottle of Clorox 
to make everything white. And we know that light in our Bible, in our gospel, is a tremendously common metaphor. But as we read this text, we need to remember as well that language is not static. Meaning is accrued over the course of time and of generations and of geographic shift. Meaning is accrued, but it is not always accrued intentionally, though it always has an impact, whether or not we are aware of it. A couple of years ago, I did some continuing education and took a preaching seminar. And we were working through the Gospel of John, where this metaphor of light and darkness is prevalent. And so I asked the presenter how one deals with such metaphors of light and dark for good and evil, because some of my colleagues, notably people of color, had flagged them as particularly problematic, perpetuating the narrative of black folks as bad and ignorant and savage. The presenter never got to answer my question because some of the other folks who were taking that same seminar with me were so incensed that I had even asked it in the first place. They were so incensed that I had suggested that metaphors that had worked 2,000 years ago had taken on some baggage in the intervening years. Every kid knows what it is to be scared of the dark, I was told, quite heatedly. It was a human instinct, one that no one questioned, and apparently that no one should ever question, at least not in a room full of mostly white clergy. During a break in the continuing education seminar later that day, however, the one black person who had been in the room told me how much it had meant for someone to ask the question that I had asked to take the experiences of folks like him seriously. Because the equation of white light with good and with God and darkness with sin and evil and ignorance was one that had been mapped onto skin color for him time and time again. Because when Europe and America were trying to justify the African slave trade, they used the Bible to do it. Just as they had used the Bible to justify anti-Semitic pogroms and the ways that our ancestors taught us to read our scriptures, the meanings that we have been handed as God's own truth, those that continue to resonate in ways that the original gospel writers could never have imagined. And this man, this black pastor in a room full of white people, talked about the ways the children were indeed afraid of the dark. The children were indeed afraid of him. How he watched as their parents unconsciously taught them to fear, by tensing when they passed folks like him in the street or crossed the street to avoid him by pulling their purses a little closer in supermarket lines, by standing between him and their children. Because we have so deeply internalized that message that white is good and normal and godly, and that black is evil and sinful and savage, that even if we reject the notion when it is laid out so starkly, it is a part of who we are. We have so deeply internalized the message that white is good and darkness is sinful that we don't question but we justify the huge disparities in how the judicial system treats people of color. We have so deeply internalized the message that white is good and darkness is sinful that we don't pause to consider why it is that opioids are a public health crisis, but crack required tougher sentencing laws. We have so deeply 
internalize the message that white is good and darkness is sinful, that this unexamined bias inherent in our culture has changed the ways we hear and react to and live out the gospel message. When we're in our own lives, going about our own daily routines as white folk, in a wor world that prioritizes what white folk, it can be hard to have any perspective. It can be hard to have the clarity to see how things could be otherwise and where healing is required. We can get so caught up in our own lives, our own experiences, that we lose track of other lives, other experiences. We can start to believe that what we know as white people is the truth for everyone, because our experiences seem universal from our limited perspectives. We can get so caught up in our own lives that we fail to see the larger patterns and systems of which we are a part. We focus on the parts we want to see and reject the aspects that make us uncomfortable. What would happen if we went up that mountain of transfiguration? What would happen if we put ourselves in a place where we could have clarity beyond ourselves, to see the world not just as we know it, but as it truly is? Where we could have the clarity to see the world as God yet believes it could be. I think it would be a pretty disorienting experience, don't you? To get ourselves into the place where heaven and earth combine, to find ourselves face to face with not only our prophets, but with the uncomfortable truth of what we might hear from them. Peter, fresh from both his assertion of Jesus' glory and his rejection of any form of suffering that Jesus might endure, wants to build dwellings, to remain, to stay on that mountaintop and give hospitality to the world as it could be, far away from the world as it is. Peter, who only internalizes the parts of Jesus that are comfortable, gets the reminder that he cannot have the glorious Messiah without having the disruptive radical who angers the authorities. What would we get if we were Peter? What would we hear in the places where heaven and earth collide? What would we see if we could gain the clarity of transfiguration? I think that many of us imagine that it would happen for us much as it did for Peter and James and John. One day, hiking Blue Job or standing in the wind atop Mount Washington, boom! Jesus and Moses and Elijah, all of them dazzlingly white, glitteringly beautiful, tangible manifestations of God standing right in front of us, obvious in their divine light. What clarity would that moment bring to us, we who already associate whiteness with goodness? What new perspectives would we bring back down into the world from that particular vision that would help create God's kingdom among us? I wonder at our imagination's limits, for no amount of heavenly Clorox applied to their garments could change the fact that the transfigured trio would be dark-skinned, bearded, Middle Eastern men, one of whom had killed a man, Moses, and another of whom would face the death penalty, Jesus, would we see the presence of God's kingdom in a group of people who looked like that? Or would we see them as terrorists, no matter how white and dazzling their garments might be? The trick with stories like this one in our Gospels is that they are fixed, even as the world changes around them. Jesus goes up a mountain into radiance and glory described as dazzlingly white, and for us, this is a comfortable narrative. Because whiteness, clearly, is pure and good. And so we miss the vision the change in perspective, the challenge that should come with this story. 
We miss the way that this moment refocuses the disciples, indeed refocuses Jesus himself, on the ministry of seeing the brokenness of the world and committing to the disruptive healing that will change everything. We miss the way that this mountaintop allows them to spend a moment envisioning God's kingdom and how it might emerge in our daily lives. Because when we see Jesus, the prophets, or God, through the comfortable narrative of light and dark as metaphors for goodness and sinfulness, we cut ourselves off from the possibility of witnessing a modern-day transfiguration, of testifying to the hopes and dreams that God has for humanity, rather than holding on to the hopes and dreams that we have for ourselves. On the night before he was killed, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of his own mountaintop experience. This man whose dark skin bore an inner radiance that was intolerable to a world where only whiteness could be good. Dr. King spoke of his own mountaintop experience, and he didn't say in particular whom it was that he saw there. Though we can imagine Moses, given his vision of a promised land, and Jesus, given the courage of Dr. King's faith, but I cannot help imagining the presence of other prophets, besides the Egyptian and the Palestinian, indigenous leaders of colonized areas and ghettos, organizers of marginalized migrant groups and sweatshops and labor camps, bright in technicolor radiance, not dazzlingly white, but a glowing rainbow of God's brilliant glory. All of the folks who had seen the realm of God, who had the clarity to bring God's healing to a broken world, even in the face of deep resistance, all of the folks who could send King back down the mountain, into the world as it is, into the Memphis of sanitation strikes and demands for humanity and dignity, the Memphis of death threats and violent reprisals. We all know what happened when the Transfiguration called the Kingdom of God into Memphis, Tennessee in April of 1968 when the radiance of the divine shone through the prophets, dark and light-skinned alike, to emerge with the words, I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up the mountain, and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Have our eyes seen that glory? Have our eyes seen the radiance of God calling us out of ourselves and the impulse to believe our experiences are universal? Calling us out of fear? out of judgment, out of fragility that makes God in our image rather than seeing God in creation? Have our eyes seen the radiance of God calling us into the kingdom of the God who stands firmly on the side of the marginalized? Have we been to the mountaintop? Have we stood in the brilliance that opened us to all we'd been unwilling to see, that changed our very understandings of the gospel, that demanded to dwell with us, that called us to both glory and despair for the healing of the world. Have we been to the mountaintop? And are we called there now? What would a mountaintop moment look like for us? What would it take to break us open to the presence of divinity 
in ways that challenge our deeply internalized biases and fears, in forms that remind us to hear beyond our own desires. What would it take to grant us a vision so powerful that we wanted to stay in it, that we longed to keep it with us, that we would carry it on into the world as it is, that we would work to recreate here in this world the vision of a kingdom of God, a realm of compassion and justice so profound that we would willingly upend our lives to recreate the world in God's image. What would it take for us to grant hospitality to the dazzling radiance of God such that we are able to hear the challenge of the gospel and carry into the world the vision of healing to our deeply broken and divided and fearful lives, to our entrenched ideas and our unacknowledged blind spots. The mountaintops are there, in our lives, waiting with their prophets in all their dazzling glory, with the voice of God swirling, longing, calling to us. Will we build them a dwelling place within our own hearts? Will we allow ourselves to be transformed? Will we come back down, aware of God's presence in darkness and in light? And will we say for all to hear, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.